Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, dedicated to advancing options and providing hope for people living with cancer. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about immunotherapies for cancer with Dr. Carla Rothlin. Dr. Rothlin is Doris McDonald Duberg Professor of Immunobiology and Professor of Pharmacology at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a Professor of Surgical Oncology. Carla, maybe we can start off by you telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Maybe I should tell you I was born in Argentina, and it is in Argentina where I did all my you know, initial training in science. So I studied biochemistry and pharmacy at the University of Buenos Aires and then did my PhD at the University of Buenos Aires. And interestingly, it was in a very different area of research. My PhD was in neuropharmacology. And then now, almost 20 years ago, I came to the United States. I came in particular to California, to the Salk Institute, where I did my postdoctoral training. And it was there where I became fascinated by immunology and where I started to learn about immunology. And I know today we're going to talk more about it. And after doing my postdoc at the Salk Institute about 12 years ago, I moved uh, to Yale where I started my own lab. And I'm at the Department of Immunobiology here at Yale. And I have, you know, had tremendous, you know, wonderful time here. And I'm very fortunate to have been able to start my lab uh, in this, uh, you know, wonderful university. So tell us more about what your lab does and what you study. We are very interested in understanding the immune response. But in particular, what we are interested in understanding is what are the mechanisms that regulate how much the immune response will be. So how do you regulate the magnitude of the immune response? And also how long that immune response will be? How do you regulate the duration of the immune response? And as you can imagine, understanding the regulation of the magnitude and the duration has tremendous implications every time the immune response is turned on. So those are kind of like the two fundamental features of the immune response that our lab centers on. So, you know, right now when we're in the middle of this COVID pandemic and people are are getting vaccinated, I think a lot of people are thinking about the immune response in terms of of vaccines and, and how long that immunity from the vaccine will last. So has your lab kind of thought about um, that? I mean, how, how do we kind of gauge how long an immune response will last or um, from, from a vaccine, for example? Yeah, no, that's a very, very interesting question. Um, so when you think about the duration of the immune response, you would probably want to also think how the immune system is built. So it turns out that the immune system in, in mammals and in us, in, in humans, has two big divisions, let's say. One, which is called innate, and we're all born with that. 
type of immune response. And it's the very fast, quick response. And then there's another one, which is called adaptive. And that is more tailored, more specific to each of the pathogens that, for instance, we can encounter. Uh, when we're thinking about the duration of the immune response in the context of vaccines, we are thinking that we really want to activate those cells of the adaptive immune system because they have the peculiarity that they can remember, they have memory. And that is very important to understand. Now, our lab has focused primarily on trying to understand what regulates the duration of the more initial immune response, of this innate immune response. And the reason why that is also very important is that uh, that response is not so much directed to the pathogen, to the microorganism that is infecting us. It can be broader and therefore can potentially have some, you know, uh, adverse effects. Uh, for instance, inflammation forms part of this very first innate immune response. So we absolutely need it to get the system going, to get the immune response going. It's absolutely required for inducing this immune response, but it cannot go on forever. So our lab has really focused on trying to understand what dictates the duration of this initial innate immune response. So when you talk about the innate immune response, is that kind of like if somebody got infected with COVID, whether they produce a response against that? Or is that still more the the other longer term um, response where you develop a memory? Right, right. So it's more the first type of response. So what um, our system, you know, our immune system is capable is that it can first recognize general changes, right? Um, let's say maybe we are infected just with a bacteria or with a virus, right? And it can detect that. And the cells that are involved in detecting that initially are the cells of this first response, this innate immune response that can detect that we've been infected with a bacteria or with a virus or, you know, with a fungi or a parasite. Now, as I was alluding, there is this other more sophisticated adaptive immune response. And that takes a little bit longer to be triggered, is triggered by the first, by the innate, and has that memory capacity. And what is beautiful also about this adaptive immune response is that it has the ability to distinguish which bacteria is infected or which virus is infecting us. So just to take the example of a virus, for instance, our adaptive immune response to uh, COVID-19, to SARS-CoV-2, will be different than, for instance, influenza. So the adaptive immune response can distinguish that. Our lab focus more on the very first response that realizes that you have a virus, but maybe doesn't realize which virus it is, or realizes that you've been infected by a bacteria, but doesn't really realize which type of bacteria. Uh, but this first response is fundamental. And the very interesting aspect of it is that we are born with it. That's why it's called innate. So as soon as we're born, we're able to react to this you know, microorganisms. And then as we are exposed to them, we are able to induce this adaptive immune response, this learned response that is the one that then will confer memory and that will be more specific. 
So, so Carla, when your lab studies this innate uh, immune response, this initial response that, hey, there's something uh, foreign in my body and that will help trigger the more adaptive response, you had mentioned that you're looking at kind of the magnitude and the duration of that innate response. But it seems that the innate response, it, it really is a little bit shorter than the, the longer term adaptive response. So how important is the magnitude and the duration of the innate response? And why did you choose to look at that? Yeah, no, that's an absolutely very important question. So, of course, my answer will be that it's very important. And let me elaborate why. So, in the field, we have learned by the time we were, you know, starting to to be focusing on trying to understand what regulates the magnitude and the duration, we already knew a lot what triggers this innate immune response. And that was fundamental, right? So we understood the rules by which the innate immune response is engaged. But as I was saying, this is the very first response, right? It's the one that tells us, oh, we have a bacteria or we have a virus, but cannot really distinguish between the type of bacteria or the type of virus. And therefore, it's very broad. It doesn't really help us to only attack the bacteria or, you know, the virus or the parasite. And it can also, when it functions, uh, when it's triggered, it can also induce what you could call as collateral damage and it can affect your own cells. The classical example is that inflammation is a key part of this innate immune response. And as you can imagine, inflammation can be very good to help eliminate pathogens, but can also affect our own body. So we absolutely need this response when you get injured or when you have an infection. But the problem is what happens if you react way too much or if you react forever. And so that became a key interest of our lab, trying to understand what dictates how much you should respond so that you can attack the pathogen, but not yourself, and how long you should respond so that once you have eliminated the pathogen, you don't keep on reacting uh, against, you know, something that is not there anymore. So over the years, we have been able to identify key breaks of the innate immune response. So why did you choose to look at the innate response and why is the magnitude and duration of that so important? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so as I was uh, alluding, so we require this very first innate immune response. And at the time we started to become interested in understanding the regulation of the magnitude and the duration of the innate immune response, we already knew quite a lot what triggers this innate immune response. So that was fundamental work that allowed us to understand that you need this response. But a feature of this response, as I was saying before, is that it's triggered when, for instance, you encounter a bacteria or a virus or a parasite or a fungi, um, but it's pretty broad and therefore it not only reacts against the microorganism or the macroorganism, but it can also affect your own self. For instance, a classic aspect of the innate immune response is what we usually call inflammation. And so you can imagine that if this very broad immune response is way too high 
or if it lasts forever, it can really induce of what is known as collateral damage. It can really start affecting your own body. So the way the system is built is that you kind of like turn on this initial fire, right? That then allows the induction of the more sophisticated adaptive immune response. But then you need to put of this fire. And that's when these molecular mechanisms that regulate how big the fire will be and how long the fire will be come into play. And you can imagine that then they become very important. You really need to regulate how much and the duration so that then you don't start affecting your own self. And this is what could happen in some type of diseases such as chronic inflammatory diseases or autoimmune diseases where you start affecting also your own self. And so as we think about the implications for cancer, I mean, what you're describing makes me think about things like hepatitis, where, you know, you can have hepatitis, which then causes inflammation and fibrosis and and sets you up. Uh, for hepatocellular carcinoma. Is that kind of the area that then brought you to thinking about cancer or where does the cancer angle come in? Yeah, no, that's a very, very good analogy. So it turns out that absolutely, you're right. You have situations where you have this very chronic inflammation, this, you know, kind of persistent activation of this innate immune response. And we know that chronic inflammation can absolutely increase the risk of some cancers. But the answer is not just so black and white. So what we are starting to learn is that there are different types of inflammation. One, like the one you described, very well known to increase uh, the risk of cancers, but there are other potential types of inflammation. And this is actually the area of very much, you know, ongoing investigation in the whole field. What are the different types of inflammation that you have in cancer and how do they contribute to the cancer. And the analogy that I would make is that, let's say you sometimes want to induce a little bit of this fire, right? To mount a good immune response against the cancer, but you don't want to induce too much, right? That then might be detrimental. So we are still at the level of trying to understand what are the different types of inflammatory responses in cancer and how they contribute to mount a good immune response against cancer or how they might contribute to actually favor cancer progression. And so when you when you're talking about mounting an immune response against cancer, it reminds me of things like immunotherapy. Um, so you know, as we think about um, cancers and and when we think about immunotherapy, we often think about kind of revving up that immune system um, because so many cancers can hide uh, from from the immune system. So I wonder whether part of your work has to do with immunotherapy. But first, we have to take a quick break for a medical minute. So please stay tuned for more information about immunotherapy and cancer with my guest, Dr. Carla Rothland. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, working to eliminate cancer as a cause of death. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about melanoma. While melanoma accounts for only about 4% of skin cancer cases, it causes the most skin cancer deaths. When detected early, however, melanoma is easily treated and highly curable. 
Clinical trials are currently underway to test innovative new treatments for melanoma. The goal of the Specialized Programs of Research Excellence in Skin Cancer, or SPORE grant, is to better understand the biology of skin cancer with a focus on discovering targets that will lead to improved diagnosis and treatment. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Carla Rothlin. We're talking about immunotherapy for cancer, and right before the break, Carla, you were telling us about the work that goes on in your lab, really looking at the innate immune response and the magnitude and duration of that response. And and I wonder how that really pertains to cancer. And right before the break, you mentioned that it's not only thinking about the inflammation and and the collateral damage that can occur that may predispose patients to cancer, but it's also in looking at the immune response that your body mounts against cancers. Um, which makes me think more about immunotherapy. So can you talk a little bit about um, how that works and and what work you've been doing in that regard in your lab? Absolutely, yes. So when we think about the immune response against cancer, I think it's very important to recognize that, you know, the immune response evolved to protect us against pathogens. So when we mount an immune response against something that has change in our body, such as is the case of cancer cells, we're going to go through the same rules. So as I was saying at the beginning, the very first innate immune response is absolutely essential for allowing us to mount an immune response, for instance, to a microorganism. And it turns out that, of course, it's going to be essential to mount a good immune response to cancer. Now, when we start analyzing the immune response that the body mounts against cancer, we realize that there are a fraction of patients in which the immune response has effectively occurred. And probably during years, it has tried to control that cancer. And so in those patients in which the immune response has occurred, It could be that maybe now the immune response is kind of tired, right? Many people refer to it as exhausted. And what happens is that those cells that have the memory, those cells of the adaptive immune response that can really go and kill the cancer cell, right? As they would have done it if they were responding to a microorganism, now they're responding to a cancer cell, they can become tired. And so a large fraction of the current immunotherapies are centered on reactivating those, for instance, T-cells, those adaptive immune cells that have become tired. And this has been absolutely revolutionary in the treatment of patients. So you can see how understanding the fundamentals of the immune response has translated into effective new therapies for cancer patients. But it turns out that not all the patients have been able to mount a good immune response to the tumor. In some patients, there are no T-cells to reactivate. They never were activated in the first place. And that's where our thinking came in. That's where turning on this you know, fire, not too big, but turning it on a little bit, might allow us to really kick the immune response against the cancer. And so a lot of current efforts in immunotherapy are centered on this initial uh, response because we realize that in some patients it might not 
have occurred, right? And so we need to turn this on. Or in some patients, it may also have gotten tired and we need to reactivate it. So how, how exactly do you do that? Because I think when I think about cancer cells, I, I really think about normal cells that have gone awry. And so is it perhaps that the body, especially in low-grade cancers, cancers that look very much like normal cells, but that are just a little bit deranged, that the body may not recognize them as being foreign? Um, and how do you kickstart that innate response? We're talking about this very early stage where cells are changing from being normal to, to abnormal, right? From this pre-malignant to, to malignant stages. And, and again, our immune system, the innate immune system is very sensitive to changes in the tissue. Uh, so instead of uh, recognizing changes uh, in terms of mutations that might have arised in that cancer, right, which is something that is much more recognized by the adaptive immune system, the innate can recognize if there has been a change in the tissue, if maybe some cells are not functioning in the right way. And so those are things that uh, we are very interested in understanding at the molecular level. What leads the activation of this uh, innate immune cells? And then what is it that maybe these changes that might appear like kind of like a wound, you know, uh, might affect the biology of these innate immune cells? Can you give us some glimmer into what those mechanisms are of actually kickstarting that immune system? Because many of the people who are listening to this show are are, are thinking that's great. Um, you're studying it um, at the basic science level, but really where we're interested in going is how do we actually conquer cancer um, at a patient level? And so, so you know, can you give us a, a sense of what are kind of the molecular mechanisms that you're, you're looking at and, and how might we change those so that for actual patients, we can potentially use this to make a difference? Absolutely. Yes. So this is where, again, basic science comes in, right? And I think uh, this is where we need to understand fundamental biology. So the approach that we take is trying to understand what triggers this first response. To do this, we make use of models, right? It's sometimes uh, not so easy, you know, to study this directly initially in a patient, but we can take models where we can induce, for instance, the transformation of a cell or we can induce an infection. And this is very important because, as I said, the principles are going to be pretty much share with the immune response to infection. And so in these models, which are in many occasions animal models, what we try to do is to try to detect how the cells of the innate immune system, these first responders, react to a cell that is changing, either because there has been an infection and a wound or because it has been mutated. And so we do this with advanced techniques that allow us to understand what is changing in the immune cell. Now, a very important aspect, I think it is to then try to go to patient samples and understand whether those features that we saw change in the context of an infection or in the context of a model of cancer in an animal model are also detected 
in the context of a transformation of, you know, a cell and the response to this in the patient. So I think going from these very fundamental basic approaches to taking some translational approaches and trying to understand whether the same changes are observed is very important. But then again, I think we need to go back to the experimental models because once we understand what those changes are, we would like to intervene and, you know, modulate them, right? So we can maybe turn on that fire a little bit more, maybe induce that immune response a little bit more. And to do that, again, we need to go to the model. So we start with the model, we validate and understand whether it is the same in a human setting. And then we go back to the model to try to understand how we can change it to make it better. And it is this iterative, you know, type of, uh, you know, experimental approach, right? From the model to human samples to the model that has led to a lot of new ways to change the immune response. And I am confident that it will allow us to understand what we need to change in those patients that haven't mounted an immune response to cancer. So tell us more about some of these interventions that you've tried and how they work in in the models and and what prospects there are to actually uh, having the same intervention in patients. Absolutely. And, and I, you know, and then uh, just as a second piece to that question, um, you know, when you talked earlier about this collateral damage, you wonder about when you actually take that into patients, whether there will be collateral damage as well as you continue to light that fire or whether you've really gotten it down to the point where y- you can modulate that very well to limit that collateral damage. No, absolutely. Okay, so let me give you this with an example. So, as I said, we tried to understand what are those ways to regulate, right, the magnitude and the duration. And again, we went from the animal models to, you know, some uh, human samples, right? And in doing that, we identified genes that encode for molecules that are those regulators. And some of those uh, genes and those, you know, proteins that are encoded by these genes are a key focus of our lab, and they are called TAM receptor tyrosine kinases. The interesting aspect of this is, as I said, they are like the breaks of this innate immune response, right? And these proteins can be targeted by drugs, right? So these proteins, right, are in innate immune cells, and when you activate this protein, it will act as a break of this innate immune cell. It will put down this fire, right? What we can do is we can uh, work and develop molecules that inhibit the function of this protein. Or we can also generate animal models that do not even have this protein, right? And so what you would predict is that if you do not engage this break so well, you will mount a better fire, right? So we will be able to regulate the magnitude of this response. And so that's what we have discovered. And so going from the animal models to human cells, we now know that we can use small molecules that inhibit these proteins and that allows a better fire. And we know that in animal models, this can lead to the ability of these animals to mount a much better immune response against cancer. So we are 
actually right now at the process of starting to translate this into humans through uh, investigator-initiated clinical trials, actually here, right here at the Yale Cancer Center. Uh, so we can try to understand whether these drugs, which we know are safe, can, you know, induce a little bit more this fire. And you asked me the question, okay, but, you know, how do I ensure that it's not a big, big fire that will induce collateral damage? That's a very, very important um, question to answer. And I think that brings me back to my initial training, uh, which was really in pharmacology. It was in neuropharmacology, but I, I learned, I think, a lot about pharmacology. And that's where, you know, drugs gives you the ability to uh, you know, think a lot about the doses, the regimens, you know, how you're going to try to modulate this in vivo. And that becomes very important. Uh, so how much you would give of this drug, maybe whether you will deliver it just to the tumor site so you don't start a fire everywhere. And that's an aspect that will be very important into making sure that this can truly uh, help the patients eliminate the cancer and not induce fires and places that we don't want to. Dr. Carla Rothlin is Doris McDonald Duberg Professor of Immunobiology and Professor of Pharmacology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.